Welcome back to The Deal. This is Danny Brown. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Today's guest all the way from the OC, my boy, Tommy Beetle, Touchdown Tommy, as I call him. He's the uh, founder, CEO of Thomas James Homes, the largest infill single family developer in the country. We're talking about anywhere from about 150 to 200 custom homes at, a, at any given time all over, mainly the west side of LA, but all over the place. Great guy, good friend. We've done a lot of business together. We've uh, known each other personally a long time, social, socially as well. Uh, good dude all around and this is a really really interesting take and breakdown on his story his company's story and uh, it really gives you a good insights inside scoop on what's going on in the real estate market hope you like it Bye. This is Danny Brown. Welcome back to The Deal. I have a very special guest here today, Tommy Beadle. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you. Founder of Thomas James Homes. Used to be Thomas James Capital, yeah. but known as Tommy's Homes. And here he is, Tommy. <laughs> good to see you, brother. How you are too. you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks well, for having me. Of course. I'm thrilled to have you here and uh, might piss some people off to have you here at Compass because people are very possessive about you and your time and your deals oh, and this and on. that. We're, we're open. We're, we're open, open, open for business. Every, everybody. So for those of you that don't know, quick intro, Tommy's company is the largest infill developer uh, in in the country, I would assume. Yep. I know focusing mainly on the west side of L.A., but it's expanded to many other places. Uh, what that means is, I don't know, a couple hundred homes in production. I don't know. Yeah. You'll get into that. But let before we get into Tommy's development and what's going on, let's take it back to the beginning. You grew up, you were a Southern California guy. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Sacramento originally. Sacramento. Uh, moved back to Southern California. My family's from Southern California. Uh, moved back to the Valley in 1990. Yeah. Um, and lived in Canoga Park. Went to Hamilton Elementary School. Uh, in 91, I moved to Palmdale. And I would say my formative years were in Palmdale uh, from 91 to 98 until I went away to school. Uh, went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Uh, and then found my way back to uh, Southern California when I got into the mortgage business. Yeah. So Palmdale is where you were a good point, point, a good part of growing up. When you got yeah. into real estate, mortgage was your first gig, so to speak, your first kind of taste of real estate? Yeah, well, I would say it was before that. Um, the first place that I got involved in real estate is I watched one of those late night infomercials. Uh, really? Let me teach you how to yeah. leverage up your credit cards and buy a piece of real estate. Yeah. And I went and bought my first um, condo in uh, in Long Beach in 2002 uh, when I was 22. And so, uh, yeah. Um, and it was because I watched an infomercial, went and sat through this free 
seminar weekend. And so, what was that? What was the price point of a condo in 2002? I bought it for 130,000 for a two bedroom, two bath condo. Uh, and it was fantastic because I lived in one room and I rented the other room to my brother and a buddy of ours. They paid the mortgage payment and I lived free. And I was awesome. like, this is the best to live in real estate for yeah, free. Yeah, right? I got it. So, it was an income property right away. It was. Yeah. And do, how did you piece together the cash? Credit cards? or No, I did, I, back then you could get 100% financing. So you and got, I got somebody to give me 100% financing. And uh, I waited, the market went up, and I refinanced and put a normal loan on it. And That's you know, I didn't, I didn't get caught in the 07, 08 bubble with that yeah. property. And uh, finally sold that a few years ago. Don't own it anymore. I bought a triplex in the city of Orange a couple years later. And uh, same thing, lived in one unit, rented the other two. Got it. So they uh, were living, you were living in them and renting them out. Yeah. Was- so they, they basically paid for themselves and I could live free. Uh, and then that's when I got in the mortgage business after that. So. And mortgage business, were you explain where were you when the mortgage was? Did you have you were at a bank, a big bank, or were you guys started? So, so the, you said that's the real deal. So you want me to get real of how it really started? Yeah, I was, how did it really I was start? working at Red Lobster as a waiter, yes. and my dad was refinancing his house with my cousin. And he asked my cousin, "Hey, do you think that's something Tommy could do? He's in a dead end job." And my cousin said, "Yeah, have him come talk to me." I went and talked to my cousin. He said. Get some experience, get a license, I'll give you a job. So the next day I went out and started applying for my real estate license. I got my license in 01, 02, uh, 2001 actually. Um, And went and applied to another mortgage company. They gave me a job, no experience needed. I learned for a couple months. When I got my license and I had experience, I went back to my cousin and he said, okay, I'll give you a job. Gave you a job. Yeah, and it was just a small mortgage brokerage company in South Orange County and uh, there were eight employees when I started there uh, and they were doing direct mail, uh, residential refis for you know consumers only in Southern California. So we were a direct mail shop mailing letters to people in Southern California. Yeah. yeah. So that's where it started. That's how it started in 2001. So you could start at the Red Lobster, ladies and gentlemen, and work your way up to Me, thing. Beyonce, Jay-Z. I mean, all there's a long there's a lineage pedigree. of Red Lobster people. I've become yes, an apply for a job. That's good yes, company. Yes. So that was long before Touchdown Tommy came about. <laughs> Does anyone else call you Touchdown Tommy? Or no, no, only you. You know what that reference is from, though. I don't. You don't know Tommy Vardell out of Stanford, All-American first-round draft pick, I, touchdown I, Tommy? I don't. You'll okay. look that up. Somebody I'm gonna have fact to. check that. Okay. <laughs> uh, all these years I've called you touchdown Tommy, you have no idea why. None. No, he was a stud running back at Stanford, first-round okay. draft pick. Yeah. You, you went Will- to school together. I didn't. I, I didn't. My SAT scores didn't allow me to go to Stanford. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, all right. So you got in the mortgage business right yeah. out of Red Lobster. Yeah. You start cranking out loans. Yeah. And I grew a mortgage company for my cousin. So, so my- that was your first real like hardcore business yeah. experience. Yeah. And I was uh, I was a loan officer. And then we, uh, my cousin wanted to grow and expand the business. And uh, we went and got licensed in 17 states across the country. And I oh, wow. was personally licensed in multiple of these states because you had wow. to have a designated representative license. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to Florida to test for a real estate license in Virginia and Maryland. So you and tested all of these states. To. Yeah. And so we grew this company from eight people to, I think when I left, there was just under 100 people doing mortgages. Yeah. And we were a huge, again, direct mail refi shop. And this is um, early 2000s yeah, through mid 2000s? Yeah, it's from till 2006. So I left in June of 2006 yeah, uh, so to start my own thing. Yeah, that's a heck of an thing. experience yeah, for a young was, guy. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I had 50 loan officers that worked for me. I was responsible for all the production um, and uh, how we grew and got more loans in the door. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting. What I got to learn about that as well at the time is all aspects of real estate, not just, uh, you know, mortgage touches title, right? Touches it touches, um, uh, uh, appraisals and I mean there's a lot of aspects that you know 
uh, mortgages touch. And so I get to learn, you know, a lot in that business, but we were also a correspondent lender. So we were using warehouse facilities and we were lending our own money and then selling the loans off to Countrywide and Saxon and all these, you know, big yeah. mortgage companies. So it was a, it was a big learning lesson to, to go through that that mortgage business. Yeah, so you really cut your teeth on that. Yeah. So now you make the switch. Did you make a switch consciously into, hey, I'm gonna start going, because I knew you at some point you were telling me you start going to foreclosure sales. Is this about yeah, so when you got o- out of that? Or? No, in 06, we made an effort, uh, a decision to consciously leave um, the mortgage company and start Thomas James Capital. And you know Jim, yeah. who uh, you know started the company with me. Right, uh, that's Jim the James. in the mortgage? Jim was the CEO of the mortgage company he I was. worked with. Okay, yeah. I and so, about that. Um, he left and we started the company together in 06 and uh, we're a mortgage company for a couple of years. Got and it. it was, you know, mortgages, it, it works very similar to a brokerage business where you make a certain dollar and certain piece of it goes to the house and a certain piece of it goes right. to the to the loan rep, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, that's why you have to have a real estate license because it's a commission driven business. And so when I was doing all these loans and giving a piece to the house, I said, nah, I'm just gonna go do it on my own. Well, mortgage splits aren't like realtor splits, right? Yeah. They're 50-50 at best yes. in a mortgage company. And so we started in 06 to go basically keep the the split from going to the Got house. Um, and did mortgages for a couple years, uh, transitioned into some new product lines that uh, the other company wasn't interested in doing. And But then mortgages stopped in 08 with yes. you know, Dodd-Frank and yeah, yeah. the whole collapse. So you guys, you and Jim had this company that you company. spun off together uh-huh. and it all the way to the crash, you were running- Mortgages. Mortgages, yeah. mortgages, mortgages. So you hadn't- We had 15 you, loan officers working for us and we were licensed in seven states. Was and, that Jim's background? Was he always a mortgage or he, he was just always a C-level corporate guy? He was a corporate guy. And he was actually interviewing for- Great guy, really, yeah, really, he's really good still, guy. Still dear friends. Um, we talked yesterday. Good, um, tell him and, I say hello. Uh, I will. Um, but he- um, he was always a C-suite guy. Yeah. So, you know, he started Security Pacific Brokers, right. which was Security Pacific Bank's discount brokerage house in the 80s. Got it. And so then, he's just had tons, yeah, tons of experience. Tons of corporate experience. He was what the president great, of Standard & Poor's Corporation. Yeah, what a great guy yeah. to so partner with. And a great mentor for me. Yeah, so, yeah, no doubt about it. All right, so now we're heading into the crisis. It's 2008, and you guys are in the middle of it, mortgages. Yeah. When did you pivot and say, hmm, maybe we need to do something else. Well, we realized we wrote all these loans that people wanted, right? And yeah. you know, everybody says, wow, you put people in crummy loans. Well, people were gonna take crummy loans, they whether they, I took it, I gave it to them or not, they wanted those type of loans, right? And so um, when we realized these loans that people were in and you could see people starting to default or call back and wanna refinance and they couldn't, um, we got into looking at how we bought distressed real estate. And I'll, I'll never forget, Jim came into my office one day and he said, I think I found our next business. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, there's this house on the market. It's uh, down in Orange County in an in a area called Cota de Casa. And he said, nice. let's let's make an offer on this. And I said, Jim, it's listed at 600 grand. What are we gonna do with it? He said, let's throw the bank a lowball bid. And I said, okay, like what? I said, like, I think we could pay 420 for it. He said, perfect, let's submit it. We submitted a $420,000 bid to the bank. It had been on the market for like six months at 600. Right. And within two hours, we had an acceptance. Oh, wow. And it was like, okay, there's the new business. Because banks needed to get out that of their real estate. That was the first one? That was the first one, yeah. And so we went in and we fixed it and um, and turned around, sold it and made money. We were in and out in three and a half, four months. Like, we were your nice. quintessential you know, HGTV fix yeah. and flipper. And it was like, okay, that works. Let's do that again. And so we started looking for others. Um, and you know, it all kind of comes back to my dad. My dad then calls me one day and says, "Hey, I know this guy who buys at the foreclosure sales right, in LA County." Is... And I said, "Okay, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in meeting." Yeah. 
And so I started working with this uh, company um, that I started buying at the foreclosure sales. And we bought our first property in Long Beach, in Virginia Country Club area of Long Beach, which is you know really an interesting story. I'll, sh- I'll share with you. We were going back and forth. He would call and say, I have a deal for you to look at. You should look at this. Okay, great. We'd get in our car from South Orange County. We'd drive up to LA. And an hour later, we'd call him. We'd say, we're standing in front of it. We like it. We'll take it. And he'd say, oh, that one already canceled. It's gone. It's gone. It canceled. So it they're selling just boom, boom, Instant. Boom. And so it's like we're frustrated week after week. We're going through this. So you can't find anything to buy. It's selling so fast. Correct. So finally, one day he calls and he says, hey, I got this property in on Pacific Avenue in Virginia Country Club in um, Long Beach. Long Beach. And he's, I said, okay, we'll, we'll be on our way. He said, you got 10 minutes. Like, it's going to go. You don't have time to get there. And I said, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, I think you should buy it and stop messing around got and it. trying to see him. Sight and unseen. Sight Just unseen. buy it. He says, I've seen it. It's fine. I said, well, what do you think it's worth? So we looked at the comps really quick. And he goes, okay, it's going to auction. Do you want it? And Jim and I are sitting at my desk. You had to make that decision. And he had to make that decision. And we said, okay, we'll take it. And he goes, okay, it's yours. <laughs> What did we pay? You paid 500 grand for it. He said, I need you to bring me a cashier's check in the next hour. For 500 grand. For 500 grand. Yeah. So, okay. (laughs) We get in the car and we drive from Orange County. check of 500 grand. Up to, we had to go get the cashier's check from the bank. Go to the bank. We had uh, the check. So, we drive up to to Long Beach and uh, the guy's office is in Paramount. And he said, um, Jim goes, hey, before we go pay this guy, why don't we look at it? Why don't we go look at it? So, we go look at this house. And we jimmy open a window, it's vacant, it's a duplex. And we get inside and we go, okay, weeds are overgrown, but it's intact, it's yeah. not, nothing's wrong with it. Okay, we, we got a good deal. Go to the bank, get our money, go to this guy's office, sit down in his office, he's in a strip mall in Paramount. <laughs> we sit across the table from him. And now mind you, I had already bought one property in Palmdale from him through my dad, yeah. right? So knew the guy he was credible, yeah. legitimate. Um, so we sit down across from him, we write him these checks. And um, he hands us a receipt that's like chicken scratch receipt. And we said, well, what's this? He's, well, that's your proof that you bought it. That's your contract. <laughs> and I go, wait a second. Like, this doesn't even have the address on it. Yeah. And Jim's looking at me like, what do we do? Like, yeah. this is crazy. You sure you trust this guy? There's bars on the window outside of his oh, office yeah. building. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this and, is the decision that needs to be made. Yeah. He goes, well, see this TS number? That ties to the trustee sale document. The trustee sale document has a legal description, and that legal description ties to the APN on the assessor's website yeah. that says it's this address. So, like, all three of these documents tie together that, like, for sure it's yours. <laughs> and that's it. It's a scrap piece. And, and I need 525 grand, guys. Yeah. Okay. So, we write him these checks. A week later, we get a deed in the mail from him that's recorded. Here's your deed. Were you just sweating you bullets it? for oh, a yeah, week? For sure. Like, we just lost our money. We Next day, we go out. We fix the property. It took us 30 days to fix it. We put it on the market. We had 37 offers <laughs> in three days, and we sold it for like 920 grand. Wow. And we caught, you know, we made 300 grand, and we we're like, okay, this that's works. The new Let's business. scale it. What year was this about? That was 08. So this is in the middle of the yeah, crisis. Yeah, 08, 09. Yeah. So you're making and, uh, money in the crisis. Exactly. Yeah. And our second one was 1504 4th Street in Koreatown. Uh, then we bought a house in La Mirada. 
Then we bought a house in the valley, like because we were running all of LA County auctions. Yeah. And so you were just whatever came up the auction, boom, boom, boom. And were you using skeleton crews at this point? Like how young company that doesn't have the relationships or how did you put crews together? Homeadvisor.com. That's you, it. Like, just, li- like lending tree for contractor leads. Yeah. You'd put it on and you'd get four phone calls of and a painter. Just try, and, trial and error. Exactly. Someone's and we, good, you kept them. Someone was bad, you got rid of and them. And they'd have friends that they'd refer us to. And so we were your quintessential fix and flipper. Yeah. Um, we we <sighs> then went to them and said, um, we would like to grow this business. We're doing it all with cash, no leverage at this point. And I said, if you'll lend me money, we can do more. And he goes, well, I won't lend you money, but call this guy. And he introduced me to my first lender. And we started borrowing money from them and leveraged the business up. And so how many houses a year are you doing in the beginning? Like 20, 25 flips a year. That's a lot. That's starting in 08, 09. Yeah. 08, 09. We we got up to 20, 25 flips a year. So you already were all over LA Crazy, because that's... You took the cash from two to three, and you put 80%, 85% leverage on it, yeah. and three becomes 20 like that, right? Yeah. And so it was about volume and scale. Um, and then some things happen in the market. Uh, you know, the FHA guidelines changed in 2010 for down payment assistance, yes. et cetera. So we, you know, there are challenges in the market, because we weren't just doing high-end real estate. We were... Um, the entire county of LA. Yeah, yeah. So we were buying from Palmdale, Lancaster, all the way down south to like Lakewood. Yeah, it sounds like most of it wasn't high end in the beginning. Most of it was the under million dollar kind yeah. of stuff. I would, I would say we were looking at everything. 2010 comes and we became back to Palmdale. My roots. We started flipping houses in Palmdale because we could buy and fix and flip uh, really quick, like paint carpet, 60 day flip. Track home type of stuff? Yeah, stuff built in the 80s, 90s yeah. that you could quantify that all you really had to do was paint carpet, landscaping, put it back on the market. And you were buying them 35% under value every single it, time. They were just unloading them, there were so many. So many. Um, so in 2010, we did 110 flips in Palmdale. Wow. Yeah, it was huge. Um, and the, the business down here with FHA guidelines had taken a little bit of a pause in some spots. Yeah. And then we found opportunities to start doing high-end stuff in uh, on the west side, same year. So we were focused, Thomas James was focused on low-end Palmdale, Lancaster, yeah. and the high-end of the west side. So that started when? West, west 2010. Side. So t- 2010, 2010 started west side. Yeah. Where did that start? You remember? Broad Beach in Malibu. Malibu was yeah. your first deal? <laughs> was my first high-end deal that I can remember that we bought like a million one house in Broad Beach. Um, uh, Jeff Churto was the agent that I worked with. <laughs> and um, I remember calling Jeff and going, I can buy this for a million bucks or whatever, about a million dollars. And he goes, um, he goes, you can, you can sell it for a million four, a million five. I don't care what the thing looks like. You can sell it for a million four, a million five. Yeah. We had three minutes to make a decision, Just bought like it, drove out there. It's empty. Called Jeff. Jeff goes, I got a buyer for it. We were closed 15 days later at a million four. Wow. I was like, okay, this is easy. Yeah. We did a deal in the Bird Streets on, um, uh, it's the Bird Street that starts with an M, uh, up at the at the top of the Mocking cul-de-sac. Bird? Um, Wait, no, I'm, t- I'm trying to. M, what is the Bird Street on the M? I can't think this blue no, thrash. It's going to drive me nuts if I can't uh, um, figure it out. But um, uh, but yeah, we so we bought this deal up. A view house up there or not a view house? View house half developed. Um, got it. Someone stopped. Someone, someone stopped. stopped building it. And and I'm sure they got foreclosed on by their construction lender. And we we came in and bought it. Um, and this we, is 10, 2010 time. 
uh, yeah, this was like 2010, 2011. Um, there it is. Marchita. Oh, Marchita. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was at the end of the cul-de-sac Marchita of Marchita. Place. Yeah. Huge 20,000-foot lot, 6,000-foot house framed. We bought it for $980,000 at the foreclosures. Wow. Turn, turn around, sold it 30 days later. Turn around, sold it 30 days later for 2.1 without doing anything to it. Oh, you didn't do anything? To Nothing. It. You just sold it to someone else? Somebody else that wanted to develop it. That's how much value you could find at the foreclosure auctions. And so we were seeing these big hits in the high-end neighborhoods. So we got ingrained in the west side of LA's real estate. Yeah. Um, we did a property at 808 Maryland in El Segundo. Um, and I'm just kind of walking you through yeah. the process of how we get to where we're sitting yeah. today, right? So at 808 Maryland in El Segundo, and there was an agent of agents is what I would call him that used to connect us with agents. And Got he it. took referral fees from agents that he would connect you with. Got it. And we sat down in this house and I remember saying to him like, you know, the agents need me. I got all the inventory. I'm buying all this stuff at foreclosure sales, right? I, I can list it myself. I don't need an agent. And he said, that's where you're wrong. And I'll never forget this conversation. He said, you think that the agents are the client and you're, you're, or you think you're the client and the agents owe it to you. It's completely the opposite. The agents are the clients. And if you want volume and inventory, you have to service the agents. Whatever agents want, whatever agents need, they control the inventory. He said, you keep thinking of all these houses. Well, when the distress goes away, who's going to control the houses? Agents. Right. So you need to flip your mentality around and say, agents, what can I do for you so that you want to work with me and bring me deals? And that was 2011. And that completely changed my- So that's I the never, shift in your business model in terms of agents. Exactly. Never listed another home myself, paid agents 5% going forward from that day forward and said, I'm, I'm, yeah. that doesn't make sense to negotiate with well, agents. Well, that is interesting because I feel like you, I don't know, single-handedly, but you guys have really elevated the game and elevated the- credibility and respect for brokers by always paying full commissions, never nickel and diming agents, rewarding them, basically making the agent's commission sacred. And very few builders did that and, and still don't do it. I think many builders have had to capitulate a little bit because they know that agents just won't bring it to them because why should I bring it to someone who's gonna cut me down when I could just bring it to you and you're gonna close immediately and pay me a full commission? And So I mean, that was just a smart strategic move and I can't imagine how you could get to where you've gotten in terms of volume without, without these relationships. I mean, of course. I mean, I think about just our relationship and it's one agent. Now multiply that by 5,000 agents I mean, that's nuts. That's, that's a lot of deals. And that's how we grew the business, yeah. was by performing for our agents, by looking at the agents as the client, and we're here Treating to service. them well, yeah. and then they're gonna treat you well. Close on their deals. When they bring you a deal, respond within a day. Close, put up your money when you're supposed to. Like, just do what you're supposed to do as a regular buyer yeah. and a regular seller on a piece of real estate. And I, I remember used to say to agents, like, why cut your nose to spite your face? I, I have a $3 million listing. I can squeeze an agent for a point and get you to cut 30 grand so you don't bring me the next deal that has 400000 in it. Yeah. Like, that's penny wise and pound foolish. Correct. And so, um, but that, that agent of agents reminded me that when the market changed, that who would control inventory was agents, he was right? right? And he was absolutely right. Um, and I think of it now, like we buy life event real estate, right? Um, and, and that doesn't mean death. That doesn't mean trust. That's like anytime there's a life event is really when real estate transacts, right? Somebody's getting a divorce. Somebody wants to upgrade. Um, somebody children, dies, yeah. children, whatever it is, right? They, and they sell their piece of real estate. Well, we buy the underutilized real estate in the market when those life events happen. Well, when those sellers sell their real estate, they don't think, hmm, let me call a builder to buy my land. They think, let me call a realtor Realtor. to sell my home, 
right? Well, we only care about the land sitting underneath it. And but so we need the realtors to think of us right. because you guys control um, that inventory. And and look, it's served me well. It's it's how we've been able to grow and scale the business um, to to the levels that we have. So talk to me now. Uh, 2012, 2013, for my records, that's kind of when you guys started really getting momentum in terms of scaling on the west side. Yeah. Can you kind of talk me through how many homes you built in the, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, kind of how many homes you've built or controlled just to give the audience an idea of scale of. Uh, yeah. So we've built and sold uh, over 500 houses, close to $2 billion worth of real estate in the right. west side of Los Angeles. And how many do you guys have in development now? So we have about 150 in LA, uh, yeah, about $400 million, $450 million of inventory in LA. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a division now in Northern California. Right, I've, I've uh, we have 70 projects going actively in the Silicon Valley, uh, call it another $200 million up there. Yeah. Uh, and then I just launched a division about three months ago in Seattle. Seattle you were and that. so I think we market. have 20 assets up in, in that market um, going as well. So, so in just, to, I'm going to keep it in LA. So right now you said you have about 150 homes and mm -hmm. different, and over the last couple of years, has that basically been a, a plus or minus 150 yeah, homes? Yeah, give or take. That's, that's about the volume that we can find. And also the volume that we're comfortable with, yeah. right? Last year we sold, I don't know, just over a hundred houses, about $300 million worth of real estate. Yeah. When you look at that in terms of the new construction real estate in, on the West side, it represents a large amount of that new construction real estate at that $3 million price point. Yeah, it has and to. so you, you know, you get to saturation levels where you don't want to be much more than that. Also, we can't find the dirt underlying to buy more than that. We yeah. would do 200 deals a year. 300 deals a year if you in LA. Could find we just can't deals find that makes sense. We can't find the dirt. Yeah, it's it's so hard. Uh, you know, when we got into after I'd say after about 16 or 17, it's, it's become very hard to find a deal that makes sense. I, I just yeah. Well, and our biggest, you know, everybody always asks, who's your biggest competitor, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't have another home builder that we would say is a bigger competitor. I mean, we see, you know, competing against developers on the market. Our biggest competitor for land is the end user. You have these homes, the home stock in LA is 80 years old on average. Yeah. Um, and that's still a good enough house that people will put some remodel dollars into it and live in it, right? Yeah. The average price of a home that we buy to tear down in West LA is about a million four, million five. Yeah. Right. So you still have buyers buying those to live in. Yeah. That's cleaning our, them up, and that's that's yeah, our competitor. That's who you're competing with. They constantly are going up in value. They'll keep paying more because they want to live in these neighborhoods, right. close to work, close to schools, etc. Yeah. Um, the top of where you can sell these homes can't keep going up, right? So it's it's a squeeze. The it's a margin squeeze, squeeze game. Yeah. yeah. So you um, and the construction costs continue to rise year over year over year. Right. Labor's up every year. Yeah. Uh, materials are up every year, and so you constantly are getting squeezed in margin um, because the competitor buying the land from us instead of us is the end user. Um, so that's our that's one of the biggest challenges of right. scaling more than we have in in LA. Makes sense. So. I don't know the year now. Was it two years ago that you sold or were acquired by? Yeah, two years by ago. Oak Tree. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Was that a, was an exit strategy? The plan all along was it that they came to you? Talk to me a little bit about what that is and what happened and what does the business look like since Oak Tree uh, has come in and, 
acquired you guys? So I would tell you, you know, with any business, it's it's you pivot based upon what's happening in the market at that time and what the opportunity is, sure. right? Um, my goal was always to grow and scale this, and and my first initial goal was to grow and to scale it into the Silicon Valley. Yeah, I saw the opportunity up there, like sure. I saw it in LA, um, and had amassed a capital, you know, capital partnerships or capital relationships to grow and scale the business. I had multiple different capital. We were running about 400 million a CapEx um, in 2017. And that was just in LA. And so then to grow and scale it to the next markets, you really needed more of an enterprise level partner. Uh, So I made a decision um, in late 2017 to um, find and aggregate all of my capital into one new partnership uh, and sell the business. Um, my current relationships or partnerships in the business uh, required that we sold the business, the whole thing. Uh, and so that's what happened uh, in February of 2018 and found a phenomenal partner in Oak Tree Capital Management who is very uh, familiar in the residential housing space uh, and and wanted to you know dedicate and grow and scale this business with me. So they've bought 100% of it, but the people have stayed in place. You and Taylor and the, yeah. the key management the executives are all in place. You're Absolutely. still running it day to day. Absolutely. You know, it's a typical private equity type relationship where there's a preferred returns and promote structure. So we still own a big promoted interest in the business, yeah. which is why we're not going anywhere, yeah. uh, myself included. Um, and so we're, you know, we're really growing it for the next exit monetization. Yeah. Um and you know, growing in other markets. What's really nice, I would tell you, is before we had asset level investors, um, and there, you know, there's two different type of investors. I would say investing in these businesses, you buy, you do assets, or you do opco. They call it opco propco, right? Property company or operating company. Yeah. A property company or an asset level investor, they only care about the properties that you're buying. Are we making return on these on individual assets? Right. Yeah. I bought this one for this. I. Built this, I sold this. Did we make money on that single asset? Uh-huh. Right, and then you aggregate them together. Where operating company says, okay, we're building an enterprise to sell and monetize an enterprise. We're not just building single year assets. We're building uh, a business that is changing home building to monetize a change of business. Uh, and so that's an opco or an enterprise level investment. And that's what Oak Tree came in. And when you get a when you get an enterprise level investment, what you get is you get a commitment to the business and um, an investment to scale the business, not just to scale the assets, right? So scaling assets takes scaling a business, right? Because the business is what's underlying building all these assets. And so we needed to make, over the last two years, significant investments in the business, the people, the systems, the processes, to to be able to grow and scale the business. Because, you know, I tell you next year, 2021, our projections are to get pretty close to a billion dollars in revenue uh, next year. Wow. Um, and so to do that, you got to invest in the people and the sure. enterprise and the process. And so that's it. what we got from Oak Tree was really a, an investment in the business to grow and scale. So what do you see trends for? Well, let's go um, first macro for you guys. You're, you're expanding into new markets. You're going into Seattle. Are there other markets you guys are expanding into? Or is that something that yeah. you're thinking about going yeah, we're, national? Yeah, we're studying we we're studying every major metro across the country to see where to go and where the opportunities exist. Uh, what's really interesting in being in three different markets is you learn something from every market sure, that then you can attribute back to this market. And so things we learned in Seattle, we now are implementing in LA and finding opportunities in this market that we didn't realize didn't were opportunities about. until we saw them present themselves to us in that's another amazing. market. Right. Um, and so that's really good to be diverse. Like that. Yeah. 
compounding opportunities. It is. So what do you say to get micro, LA, you're in all these markets, just like a broker would be. What are you seeing in terms of trends? 2020's just begun here. What is your feeling about the housing market, specifically West Side, specifically sort of the middle, high end kind of the areas that you focus on? I'd tell you the housing market in in LA is strong. It's robust, right? There's, you know, we have a very myopic view on the housing market because what we understand is the dirt sitting underneath the houses and we understand what the new house, excuse well, me, is work. Correct. We don't understand the, in all the stuff in between, right? Yeah. And I call brokers sometimes and go, well, you know, how are you doing on million dollar condos? Oh, I got just 27 offers on it. Okay. So, cause I don't understand what's the dynamics happening in those markets. Right. Um, the, the new construction inventory in the west side of LA, it's, we've, we've pre-sold seven houses in the month of January already um, at or more than we wanted for them when we bought them. And so the market is is really strong. We're getting multiple offers on properties, which, which is great. Um, I would tell you from a micro perspective in LA, and I shared with you our biggest competition is end users buying the properties, yeah. right? So Getting if your land values. is going up, the only way to cut your land cost is to put densification. And so we're on a densification play right now uh, in LA where we're trying to build multiple units on a single site and sell to individual homeowners. Um, what does that mean? You mean like a small condos? lot subdivision? No, nah, not a, a faster path of small lots. So um, we have a new product that we've launched that's a, a side-by-side duplex okay. um, that you can sell off each unit individually uh, through a condo map. Um, and uh, I'm going to be launching later this year single-family real estate in the west side of Los Angeles for $995,000. Detached, single-family, three-bedroom, three-bath. Where's that going to be located? Uh, in Culver City, Mar Vista area. Cool. Yeah. So when you can do a densification play and you can take your land basis from a million dollars and put two units on that site, now you put 500 to land basis on each one. Yes. yes. It allows volume and densification. So uh, that's, a, that, that. that's a play that we're doing because we're trying to meet more of that uh, entry level of the market. What's really interesting is it takes the buyer who's buying the house that we want to buy to tear down, it provides them a brand new product to buy instead of buying competitively with the product that we want to buy. So it's really to serve the needs of the housing market. Yeah, that is a strong niche. We talk about it all the time. When we have a condo under a million, it it goes immediately. Gone. You know, so it's a strong, strong, I mean, the market seems to be robust and healthy across all price levels, but getting to that entry level, it's just screaming hot still, which... Uh, most people don't realize unless you're really in the market. So let me ask you some fun stuff. Okay. You must have seen and have experienced some crazy, crazy things in terms of buyers' demands and requests. So with what you can share with us publicly, what are some funny, weird, crazy requests that you've had for maybe customization or maybe just something that was so wacky that you just couldn't even imagine? Because you must hear everything. Because I know I hear I feel like I hear everything. You must hear more. Yeah, you know, we see a lot of things that are uh, important to different people. Um, I'd tell you uh, the one that comes to mind is somebody wanted to buy a house and they didn't want it to look like every other house we had built in the neighborhood, you know, these white-sided houses. And so they they changed it and did a different finish on the outside. And I'll tell you, at the end of it, like, they loved it. We were like, wow, that's very personal. But you know, it's what uh, they wanted. It, it is, and they were willing to pay for it. And you know, we were we were happy to to customize and uh, and, and accommodate. So, um, 
I don't know if I have crazy stories around around customizations or or wants. I mean, I you know you always remember those those deals that people get into and then they want um, they want credits in the middle of it. Like, well, you know, we want we just another, want money. Yeah, we want money. It's like, but that wasn't we we agreed to sell you it at this price, and now you just want money back. You just want money back. Like that's that wasn't the agreement, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but um, the crazy the crazy stories I, uh, was from the foreclosure days. There were some. I bet. Oh, because stuff that. Scary stuff too. So that was a uh, people it was squatting time. in houses. People oh in- yeah, people things houses you've been through that you'd you'd never go through again. Yeah, I remember somebody yeah. in Venice Beach released a pit bull from their front door, oh, great. and the pit bull charged at the fence and hit the chain link fence. And I was oh, I'm just gonna leave this notice right here and so, get yeah. back in the car. Yeah, so uh, those were some crazy. And there times was touchdown during. Tommy flying oh, exactly. down flying. Broadway or exactly. Main Street. Well, close one street over. It's close. <laughs> I knew it. Close. Ghost town. Man. Oh yeah. So how about some just great deals? I know we did a great deal together that's gotta be one of the best is that one of the best that was one of the best you don't do that all the time i don't i mean i tell people that story all the time i you know danny danny brown's a legend (laughs) so i'm the case study for why you should bring you deals exactly you're the case study of the what we call the power of multiplicity right where you can bring a deal and you get to rep side both sides you get to find a buyer that was on that was uh, Pescara? Pescara, yeah, right. Pescara. The old NBC yeah, head house of NBC, and guest Goal, house. Yeah, and the two two houses on, it was a really two legal lots, but yeah. it didn't look that way. Yeah. You split it. Split it, built one built new one house, remodeled the other one. Yeah, I just remember sides, you. Both sides, both you re- sides. Exactly. It was like, I was like, Danny made more money on this power. deal than I did. <laughs> yeah, Mon Karch wasn't good. happy about that. No, that's okay. He's like, too much money. You got to give some back. Exactly. I just saw him at our event couple days ago i love that I guy i talked to him this morning did you yeah he should have showed up and then a guest uh you guest know that interview. would be a great guest for you on, i know uh, the guy's afraid to afraid to talk publicly really i'll i'll, I'll put in a good Give, put some pressure on him i just I asked him thursday night i was with him i just asked him so what advice would you give your yourself now that you've done what you've done in this business and you've done it for so many years if you were looking back at Tommy, just starting out is there anything you've learned that you feel like hey this advice would have been great to know then or perspective or anything. That's something we try to get out there as a theme of what, what you would think that you would have, you've learned through the years that might've saved you time or saved you headaches or whatever it might be. You know, I think if I knew what I knew today, 14 years ago, I wouldn't be where I am today. That it was, you know, I think a lot of times it's easy to look in the rear view mirror and say, would have done this better, would have done that better. Um, Sure. Did we buy some bad deals because we could have stayed more in the fairway and lost some money on what? Yeah. But if we didn't take risks and find where the opportunities were and kind of, you know, we were playing poker, right? We were we were gambling yeah. with really good pot odds and understood what the dynamic of the game was and how we could make money. And it could have all worked where I we've gotten to today or it could have all fell apart at any time. Right. Right. I mean, that's. That's the, the real estate the development beast. game, yeah. right? And so I think if you, if I tried to give advice to my old, younger self, I think then I would have been too cautious and I never would have taken all the risks and gotten where, where yeah. I was today. You know uh, I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember when we closed the deal with Oak Tree, uh, my CFO came to me and said, you know, it was, it was tight there for a little bit. I said, well, I'm glad I didn't know. I'm glad I could just keep pushing through and we could get the deal done, yeah. right? Because sometimes when you know, you don't take those risks, you don't take the gambles and um, you don't get to where you are. I mean, I think I think we're successful people. You know, the real deal uh, is that successful people is where, you know, luck meets 
uh, opportunity, right? And yeah. but then you go take advantage of it. Yeah. And so um, it's right place, right time. Uh, and if you overthink it because you know all this stuff, you're never going to take the yeah. take the chance. Get in your own way. Yeah, it's not worth it. I think that happens a lot in every business and in life in general. We get we think too much, we overthink things, get in our own way, and that's an interesting flip on advice. Is the, the advice you'd give is I wouldn't give advice because I know too much now. Exactly, <laughs> I, w- I would never taken the risk. So let me twist this question a little bit. Okay. You work with a ton of real estate agents. You've seen them. You've seen them every shape, size, and form. What sort of feedback or advice would you give for real estate agents in terms of like, hey, this is what you should be thinking about? You know, here's some advice. That, like here's what good agents do. This is what I think you should be thinking about from your perspective, from a builder's perspective. Well, you know, you, like you said, agents come in every shape and size, you know, uh, motivation. I mean, that's the biggest difference I see between most agents is, is motivations, what type of businesses they want to build. Yeah. Especially when you're selling high end, you know, three, four, five million dollar pieces of real estate. You do a couple deals a year and live a nice life. Yeah, there's Southern a lot California. of people that do that. There are. Yeah. It's hard to convince Most. those people to do anything else. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, advice for agents. I, I don't know if I could give advice to agents because um, I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to convince agents to do deal more deals with us or invest in systems that have I they either want it or they don't yeah um and what what the advice that i would say to agents um would be just because it sounds too good to be true doesn't mean that it is where a lot of people in real estate especially when i come and and say hey look we're gonna buy 150 deals 200 deals a year they're like yeah right no way (laughs) it's happy bar talk until you go do it yeah right um and most agents that we would call on they wouldn't. They wouldn't, wouldn't take it seriously. Wouldn't take it serious. Yeah, yeah. BS. And the agents right. today. And I had an agent tell me the other day, um, it was a couple of weeks ago. He said, "You know, I wish I would have listened to you six years ago because I've seen the money that agents have made with you that started six years ago when you said, yeah. let's go do this.' Yeah. And they actually listened and believed that you were going to do it. Yeah, um, there's been a lot of and, deals. And look at the volume of, of deals you've done. And um, you know, don't always. Uh, you know, and, and that's what you were saying it about other developers, right? They, you know, they've created a bad name. Um, they, they don't pay agents. Like, don't, don't don't judge every book by its cover, right? right. Be open to to different relationships and different investors because even small investors, there's some great great people out there that want to do things, and you can't let the bad people have made bad names for or bad reputation for, for something everyone. Uh, for everyone. So good point. So. If you were to think about it without giving names, what are the, what are the amount of deals that some agents have done with you guys? If you like think about the top couple people, oh, lots, dozens of deals, oh, hundreds, hundreds, of, hundreds. There's hundreds. agents that have done hundreds yeah. of deals. Oh my god! There's an agent that I I can think of that done well over hundred deals with us. Wow! Yeah, a couple of them actually. That's unbelievable. That I can think of. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you know we do we do volume, and so that was the thing is when you tell an agent I, I'm going to do this, and they listen and they believe you. Yeah. They can do business, can right? Because we're here to buy every single yeah. day. Yeah, we got money to spend. Right. Uh, so it, all you agents out there, I have money to spend <laughs> to buy and develop hot, single family hot real green, estate. Ready to go? You too, Danny Brown. We I, haven't I, done a new deal lately. I know. We need to re, we okay. need to reload. I know. Let's do it. I need to get Sarah door knocking. Well, any other passing words? Any other things you want to you want to pass on to our audience? 
I know we've taken a lot of your time up. No, this Come, has been a lot of fun. Thanks thank for you. having we me. We appreciate you driving up from the OC today, or were you, were you already here? No, I made a special trip just for you. Always good to see you, Tommy. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Talk to you guys soon. All Thanks, right. Tommy Beetle. Thanks, Danny. Hey, I really got to thank Tommy Beetle for coming up for the day to come talk to me on the deal and break down what's going on with Thomas James Holmes. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. He's really, really changed the landscape of development. You can always find him at, at Thomas James Holmes on Instagram or just look up Thomas James Holmes. You can always find us at Danny Brown LA and at the deal pod. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes and a comment. Please, please, please. Each one really, really makes a difference. And uh, our metrics are way up, and we are really trying to take it to a whole other level this year, 2020. So we appreciate it. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week.